we'll have to do a little bit of truncated version of, of what I prepared today, but welcome to Sunday School. We're moving on through the book of Joshua, and we are looking at the next thing that God did. He's done preparing the way for the people of Israel. Now he's actually going to have Israel conquer their first, their first city in Canaan, and we're going to see how that happened today, and we're going to see how the fall of Jericho really is meant to be a sobering uh, sobering reminder. On the one hand, it shows God's power to deliver, but it also shows what happens when you do not stand with Yahweh, when you persist in unbelief. And we need to see that picture today. So we're going to go through that. Let me pray before we go on. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your perfect provision. We know you're doing all things well. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this time together. Amen. Okay, please take your Bibles and open to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua 5, and we're going to be starting in verse 13. Between where we were last time and where we are today, the only big difference or the only thing to, to let you know what happened is that all Israel's males were circumcised. Apparently, the previous generation had not accomplished that part of the Mosaic law, which they had been given. And also, Israel celebrated the Passover at Gilgal. But then, in Joshua 5.13, the narrative continues, and that's what we're going to pick up. We're going to do the Jericho narrative in two parts. First, we'll hear the battle directions from God from 513 to 6.5, and then we'll see how things play out. But look at 513, and we're going to read to chapter 6, verse 5. Here's what it says. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with the sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to the man, who was standing opposite him, or said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord, that is Yahweh. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to, my ser to, say to his servant? The captain of Yahweh's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel, no one went out and no one came in. Yahweh said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warrior. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. Well, let's start our observations on this first section of the text, just basic observations of the detailed passage. Notice in the very first verse we read, 513, that Joshua is out by Jericho. Now, to appreciate everything that's about to happen, we need to know a little bit about Jericho, as far as we can tell. So let's hear some background. Ancient Jericho appears to correspond to the, the archaeological site known as Tel Es Sultan today, which is just outside the modern city of Jericho. Now, this site, if it is indeed ancient Jericho, and there seems to be good evidence that it is, built on the western side of the Jordan Valley on a hill next to a spring. And though much of the southern Jordan Valley is pretty barren, I mentioned that to you last time, the area around Jericho was pretty lush. The 
alternate titles for Jericho, sometimes used in the Old Testament, is the city of palm trees. For example, we see that in Deuteronomy 34.3. So environmentally, it was a pretty nice place. Jericho not only had water access and a good climate, but it was situated on a very strategically, or a militarily and economically strategic location. Because it basically functioned as the gateway to Canaan from the east. If you want to get to Canaan's interior, you pretty much had to go through Jericho, which was good for the economy of Jericho because merchants would have to pass through there, be a way to uh, assess customs used. But it also meant if an army was trying to come to Canaan from the east, they had to face Jericho. If they didn't conquer Jericho, well, then raiding parties from Jericho would continue to harass that army from the rear. So with these environmental, economic, and military factors in its favor, you can understand that Jericho became a desirable place to live. In fact, Jericho appears to be one of the earliest cities ever built. Secular archaeologists date the founding of Jericho to about 8,000 to 7,000 BC. Now, in this class, we argue that that's, that's not a good timeline. That doesn't take the time details of the Bible seriously, especially in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. So we would compress what is usually stretched out by secular archaeologists and say that Jericho is probably founded not too long after the Tower of Babel, around 2100 BC. It would be the Neolithic period at the end of the Ice Age. But certainly, whenever it was founded, Jericho was an ancient city. And over time, Jericho became heavily fortified. The city was built on the top of a mound. Here, I'll show you some pictures here, and then go back to the other slide. The city was built on the top of a mound, apparently had two sets of walls. The first earlier set, it was built on the top of the mound, and within those walls would have been housed the main part of the city. This wall was 26 feet high and six feet thick. And then a second later set of walls was built near the bottom of the mound, and it consisted of two parts. There was a retaining wall of large boulders, about 15 feet high and five feet thick, so a retaining wall goes right up against the ground, against the soil. And then on top of that was another mud brick wall that had similar dimensions to the wall on the top of the hill. So in all, the bottom wall of boulders and mud brick was about 40 feet high. That's a, that's a pretty big wall, you know, it's four stories. And you can see that the picture of the strategic arrangement here at the, at the bottom of the slide I'm showing you. Now, it seems that there were some walls, in the, or there were some houses in between the two walls, but archaeologically, these houses appear to be flimsier than the houses on the top of the hill. So this is probably the less desirable part of the city to live shadier area where you'd find even prostitutes like Rahab. Now, in human terms, Jericho presented a very imposing defensive obstacle. If one tried to scale the bottom wall, you then had to climb a steep slope under fire from those on the top wall and then scale or break through that second wall. It's basically a slaughter field. An assault on Jericho would be a death trap. You would lose tons of soldiers trying to break through the walls. So it'd make more sense to just try and siege this city, starve out the inhabitants. But Jericho was also well prepared for sieges. The city's spring, as I mentioned before, is built near a spring. That spring was within the city walls, so Jericho has a constant water supply. Moreover, by the time Israel approaches Jericho, Jericho has just finished the grain harvest. That's around uh, the spring around Passover, when the grain harvest would have been brought in. In fact, the archaeological remains of Tel Sultan, they have found remains of grain in containers at Jericho, or at this site. 
So by the time Israel reaches Jericho, the inhabitants are well supplied with both food and water. And they would have had extra defenders in the city. Now, ancient Palestinian cities were usually not that big, but any times of danger, people who lived around the city would come into the city for protection. So maybe there would be normally a few thousand people in the city. That number would have swelled dramatically because of the invasion of Israel. So Jericho has a ton of food, a ton of water, and a ton of men to defend it. So Israel faces this strategic puzzle. Joshua faces this strategic puzzle. Assaulting the city doesn't sound like a good idea. Sieging the city is going to be difficult. It's going to take a long time. Israel will probably suffer more in the siege than Jericho will, because after they're done foraging the food around the area, they're, they're not going to have any more food. So what's to do about Jericho? Well, let's continue on in the narrative. Notice again in 5.13 that as Joshua is by Jericho, Joshua encounters a man. This man has a drawn sword. Unsure of his allegiance, Joshua asks the man to declare his side. Are you for Israel? Are you for Jericho? But notice in verse 14, the man responds. He says, no. Does not exactly the, the way that Joshua framed the question. He says, no, or neither. And he declares himself to be part of Yahweh's army, even the captain of Yahweh's army. Well, after hearing this reply, notice how Joshua responds. He falls on his face bows down and asks what God's captain has to say to Joshua. And before proceeding, the captain commands Joshua to remove his sandals, saying, the place where you are standing is holy. Hey, we've heard that phrase before. Remember, back in Exodus chapter 3, the same thing was said to Moses at the burning bush. And remember, in that earlier instance, in whose presence Moses was, he was in Yahweh's presence. God's presence, even the angel of Yahweh's presence, each of those things is said to be true there. Now here in Joshua 5, notice we have God's captain speaking to Joshua, but then in chapter 6, verse 2, who's speaking to Joshua there? It says Yahweh. Yahweh speaks to Joshua. Notice in also in verse 1 of chapter 6 that the narrative mentions that Jericho's in lockdown, nobody coming in or out. Inhabitants of Jericho would likely expect that Israel has come to siege the city, and they are preparing to outlast Israel. But God has in mind something different than a long siege for his people. Notice in chapter 6, verse 2, that God confirms he has given Jericho and all its warriors and its king into the hand of Israel. But he gives specific directions for how Israel is to actually conquer this city. We see this in verses 3 to 5 in chapter 6. Israel's warriors are to march in a circle around the city once a day for six days. They'll be accompanied by God's ark. There'll be seven priests blowing trumpets made out of ram's horns. And then on the seventh day, a little bit different direction. Israel's to march seven times around the city. And then there's going to be a long blast of the trumpet. And all the men of Israel will then shout. Well, what's the promised result? God says, when that happens, the wall the walls of Jericho will fall down flat, or literally they will fall, or it will fall in its place. And then every man will be able to go up straight into the city and slay the inhabitants. So these are the battle directions of God. We've made these observations. Let's ask a few interpretation questions now. First, who is the captain of Yahweh's army? Can we make a more specific identification? 
we can. This must be God himself, even the Son of God. We see the same thing here as happened previously with Moses. If he has to remove his sandals, Joshua has to remove his sandals, it's because the presence of God is there. And also this abrupt switching of where it says the angel of Yahweh or the captain of Yahweh's army, and then Yahweh himself further indicates that this is God himself speaking to Joshua. It's not like the, the, the captain suddenly disappeared and now it's just Yahweh speaking and it's because they're the same. And yet they're different. Yahweh is there, and yet this person is distinct from Yahweh, represents Yahweh. How can that be? It's because God is Trinity. And of course, we've looked at that truth before. And we've also said, likely, this is the Son of God. Because as we hear in the New Testament, he is the explainer, he is the mediator of God to men. So the Son of God is very active in the Old Testament, even here with the people of Israel. But why? Why appear to Joshua this way with a sword drawn in his hand, asking Joshua to remove his sandals and giving direction for Jericho's defeat? Well, certainly one reason is because this is confirming once again that Joshua is God's man. He is the leader chosen by God for Israel. What happened to Moses happens to Joshua. Joshua has a similarly special relationship with God. But there's another more important reason. It's to emphasize something to Joshua and all Israel, and that is Yahweh is the one with the power. He is mighty, and he will accomplish the victory for Israel. I mean, Yahweh himself has his sword drawn and is ready to go. He's ready to lead his host, his army. And if Yahweh is ready to fight, well then, can the outcome ever be in doubt? What's Joshua to do? He's to go forth and fight as well, because Yahweh is the one who's really fighting for him and for all Israel. Victory is assured, not because the people of Israel have power, or even because Joshua is so special, it's because Yahweh fights for Israel. God will bring about the victory. And the battle directions given by God only further emphasize this point. These walls are going to come down, these mighty walls, these great walls of Jericho are going to come down without Israel doing anything practical to bring them down. No catapults, no siege ramp. They're just going to march around and blow trumpets and shout. Now, normally, that would have no effect on the walls. Maybe it's effective psychological warfare, but that's not going to bring down the walls. They're not going to produce enough sonic power to bring down those walls. But God was going to use these actions as part of a miraculous deliverance. Now, not all of Israel's victories are miraculous like this one. Sometimes it's merely providence of God. But God chose that this first battle, this first conquest, would be plainly miraculous. God wanted to etch firmly in Israel's minds who has the power and who's giving the victory. And because of this, Israel was to be confident in God and carefully obey his commands. But would Israel do that? Let's read on. See if God keeps his promise, or whether Israel believes that promise. Look at Joshua chapter 6, verses 6 to 27. This is where we see the rest of the Jericho narrative. So let's read that. It says, So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests carry seven trumpets or ram's horns before the Ark of Yahweh. And he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city, and let the armed men go on before the Ark of Yahweh. And it was so. 
that when Joshua had spoken to the people, seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before Yahweh went forward and blew the trumpets. And the ark of the covenant of Yahweh followed. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, shout. Then you shall shout. So he had the ark of Yahweh taken around the city, circling it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of Yahweh. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Yahweh went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of Yahweh while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, Yahweh has given you this city. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to Yahweh. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to Yahweh. They shall go into the treasury of Yahweh. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. When the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there, as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold, the articles of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before Yahweh is the man who arises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So Yahweh was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Let's make observations on the second section now. You can see, Israelites do just as Yahweh commanded. March around the city once a day for six days, and then seven times on the last day. As part of marching around the city, notice the additional restriction given by Joshua in verse 10 of this chapter. He says, no one is to shout or make any noise at all. Which is made for a bit of an eerie scene. They've got these armed men, all these armed men from Israel, marching silently, while their priests blow periodically on the ram's horns. Can you imagine what this would have looked like from Jericho? Now, how close did the Israelites get to the city as they march around? The text doesn't say, but I imagine they didn't march close enough to be struck by arrow fire or by sling stones. They probably put a little bit of a distance between them and the 
Paul's defenders. Notice in verses 16 to 20, on the seventh day, before Israel shouts, Joshua announces that the city is to be placed under God's special ban. What does this ban mean? Well, it's everything is dedicated to Yahweh. And the city and its people are to be utterly destroyed. Notice here, explicitly it says, no one is to be left alive except Rahab and her family. And as for the metal items of the city, they're to be added to Yahweh's treasury. And everything else is to be destroyed. Livestock, other goods, clothing items, all to be destroyed. Now, for many other cities in Israel's conquest, God does not command Israel to place the city and its items in and its items under the ban. Normally, Israel is free to take the plunder of the cities they conquer. But in every city, whether under the ban or not, the people of the land are to be completely wiped out. Man, woman, child, old man, mother, infant, all to be killed. No one left. But the ban is something that's put in place here. And the battle proceeds just as God said it would. See, from the text, when the trumpets give the long blast, the people of Israel give a great shout, and the walls immediately fall down, and the Israelite warriors proceed into the city. Collapsing walls likely made ramps for the Israelites to easily scale and rush into the city. Though, interestingly, according to archaeology at Tel Sultan, there was one section of outer wall that did not completely collapse, which would have allowed the homes or home in that section of the wall to remain intact. Can we think of any good reason why God would want a certain part of a wall not to fall? Certainly, right, because someone's house was in that wall, Rahab's. And apparently there was some fighting that took place even after Israel went into the city. Joshua 24:11a does mention that the citizens of Jericho fought against Israel. But this was a battle whose outcome was not in doubt at this point. The walls have fallen. The defenders have no chance. At the end of the battle, verse 22 tells us that Joshua has the two spies bring out Rahab and her family from the city of Jericho. Why is that? Because Israel's gonna burn the whole thing, which is what they do. And again, can you imagine what this experience would have been like for Rahab and her family members? They leave the city of Jericho, they see the rubble of the walls, they see all, all the people of their city uh, slaughtered, and then they see the city burned. Certainly this would have been a very sobering picture. Even though there's joy and deliverance, there is also that awesome fear of what they have been spared from, even the judgment of God. After the city is made a smoldering debris pile, notice what Joshua pronounces in verse 26, a curse on whomever rebuilds Jericho. Now get the idea of the rebuilding here. This is not simply people building homes on this site again. Actually, we're gonna see we're not going to see, but if you if you investigate, there are several times in the Old Testament where it mentions people living in Jericho. Jericho is one of the cities given as tribal inheritance. And yet there's this curse. And notice he says, the one who lays the foundations and sets up its gates. Foundations and gates are for what? For walls. Joshua is saying, whoever refortifies this city, tries to build the walls again, let that person be cursed. He will lose some of his sons. And we actually see this curse fulfilled later on in the scripture. First Kings 16:34 says, In his days, or in Ahab's days, he held the Bethelite built Jericho, that is fortified Jericho, 
And he laid its foundations with the loss of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And that was many years later. And yet the curse of Joshua, which was really God's curse, came to pass. So with these observations in the second section, let's ask a few more questions of interpretation. How would you characterize the obedience of Joshua and Israel to the Lord's battle plan? Again, it is complete. It is total obedience. And again, we might be shocked. And I remember as a young believer being particularly shocked at this fact because growing up on Veggie Tales and its version of Joshua at Jericho, that depiction uh, makes it seem like Israel was questioning God and not really sure whether they should go through with his battle plan. But that's not what we see here. No second guessing, no grumbling. Didn't seem to bother Israel at all that God said to do things that weren't practical for bringing the walls down. God said that it would bring the walls down and they believed him. God vindicated their faith. Now, it's possible there was some grumbling, some second guessing that's not recorded in the scripture, but that's not the impression we get from the text. In fact, as we've already seen, and as we are going to see as we continue through the book of Joshua, this second generation is pretty different from the first generation. First generation was characterized by unbelief and disobedience and complaint. Second generation, not perfect, but they are characterized by obedience, which comes from faith. They actually believe Yahweh, and Yahweh is pleased to give them the land and to fulfill his promises to Israel. Hebrews 11.30 confirms that these walls came down by faith. Hebrews 11.30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. God rewarded the faith of Israel. Now some might say that God shows himself cruel here by commanding the complete slaughter of Jericho and the rest of Canaan's inhabitants. But why is this not the case? Now this is a question we've brought up. But as we go through the conquest, we need to keep reminding ourselves that this was not cruel or evil by God. Why? Because God had ordained this as a judgment of the people of the land for their wickedness. He had given them time to repent, even centuries to repent. Remember, he told Abraham back in Genesis 15, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. I'm giving them time, but they won't repent. And their evil practices are even recorded in the Torah, the things that they would do, like sacrificing their children to their gods and all sorts of other debauchery and cruelty. And God says, now it's time for judgment. Israel, you're going to be my agents of judgment. You will destroy them, and I will give you the land. So this is not cruel from God. This is justice from God. Also, we saw with Rahab, it's not as if the people of the land had no option. They could have sided with Israel, and they could have fled from the land, but they chose not to do so. And partially that was because God was going to bring judgment on them. And we also know that God warned Israel, do not leave any survivors, because if you do, and if you live with them, and even intermarry with them, they will lead you astray. They will lead you into idolatry and all sorts of sin. It's exactly what we see happen to Israel, because they don't heed God's command. That comes later. See that in the book of Judges. This was not evil. This was not cruel from God. This was according to his wisdom and justice. But why was Jericho put under the ban? When most of the other Canaanite cities that Israel conquers are not. Now, why does Joshua pronounce a special curse on whoever refortifies Jericho? The text doesn't tell us specifically, but think about the significance of this moment. This is the first city 
that Israel's conquering in Canaan. And it's one of the most impressive cities, even seemingly impregnable. Therefore, it makes sense that God intended for Jericho to be made an example. God wanted an object lesson to be made in Jericho for Israel to see, for the surrounding nations to see. Jericho was this wicked city that seemed like it could not be conquered, and yet it was easily conquered by God and his people. And all of its inhabitants were destroyed, save Rahab and her relatives. So this was to be a testimony, like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a testimony to both the awesome power of God to save and bring victory, but it's also a testimony of the terrible price of sin. Israel would need this picture as they proceeded in the rest of their conquest and as they proceeded in their relationship with God and the land. Therefore, to remove this very startling and important picture would have been a foolish act, a proud act, a rebellious act, even an act that warranted the curse of God. Don't re-fortify Jericho. Leave it a ruin as a testimony, even a memorial, to Israel and the other nations. But of course, later generations didn't heed that warning. God wanted Jericho to remain a picture. Even though Jericho was rebuilt, we still do have the testimony in the scripture so that we don't miss the picture. And I think that really points us to the final question I want to ask you. What is the purpose of this account? Why did God have Joshua write about the Battle of Jericho and even devote an extensive amount of text to it? As we go through the rest of the conquest narrative, we won't see the same amount of time devoted to the other city. Why here? It's to emphasize what we've been saying. Israel is to trust in the power of God and be careful to obey him in whatever he commands. Why? Because God is mighty to save or to destroy Israel is going to continue to face trials in the conquest and in the days afterward. They would need to exercise faith in Yahweh. They would need to carefully obey him. And so they'd need Jericho's reminder. That's why Joshua wrote about it by the Spirit of God. The next generation would surely be tempted to think from a mere human perspective about the challenges they faced. Oh, we don't have the strength to go against this pagan invader. Or we can't obey God's commands. We have to compromise if we want to survive. But Jericho, God's victory brought about at Jericho, stands as a powerful testimony to the people. You can obey Yahweh, and if you do, he will bring his promises to pass to you. Believe the Lord. Nothing is too hard for him. He is mighty, and look what he did with Jericho. The most powerful fortress can be reduced to smoking rubble if God ordains it. He made impractical measures of men, marching, shouting, trumpet blowing, bring down this great city. So what will God do for you if you are willing to believe him and obey him? Will he not also vindicate your faith? Of course, the answer is yes. And that wasn't just something for Israel to realize continually. That's something that we must realize as well. And isn't that what we're seeing over and over again as we move through the conquest narrative? God is mighty. You can trust in him. And if you do, if you obey, he will vindicate your faith. I see that as the main message, the main takeaway of this account. And now we want to think through a little bit more how that applies to us. Can we be more specific about what this means for you and for me? So let me ask you a few questions. What's your Jericho? 
What's the Jericho that you face right now in your life? What situations are you facing that include seemingly insurmountable obstacles to obedience? Now, understand what I'm asking here. I'm not talking about kind of the way that maybe prosperity preachers talk. Oh, what's that thing you really want, that challenge, that breakthrough that you're looking for so that you can get that promotion or that you can have the freedom from this illness? I'm not talking about that because God didn't promise those things in the scripture. God did say, if you obey me, I'll vindicate you. So where are you facing difficult obedience to God? You say, oh, God, if I do this, it's going to be hard. Oh, God, anything but this, the consequences of my obedience are going to be maybe too much for me. It's like a Jericho. Where are you seeing that now in your life? Maybe with the work or ministry tasks set before you or relationships where you need to give the gospel or confront sin. You say, oh, God, I don't know how it's going to turn out. Do you believe that God truly is the one with real power, real wisdom, and a good heart? That he stands on the side of his people and that he's able to make the greatest efforts, the greatest schemes of man, which are done apart from God. He can turn them into nothing. But he can take even the smallest faith-filled efforts and turn them into great victory. To look at how God provided in Jericho. If God is able to do that for Israel, is he not able to also provide for you in his perfect way? We don't know how God will do it. We don't know when God will do it, but he will do it. He will vindicate the faith of his people. We're not to sit by passively until God acts. We are to proceed in obedience, expecting great things from God. So ask Ask yourselves this morning, are you like Joshua? Are you like Rahab? Are you like this believing generation of Israel? Do you trust God enough to actually obey him even when it's difficult? If not, and if you haven't been doing this, you need to repent. Because this lack of trust is a slander against God. He's the covenant-keeping God. He's the mighty God. And so when you refuse to trust him, When you live in fear and anxiety, what you're saying is, God, I can't trust you. You're not worthy of my trust. You haven't demonstrated enough. I can't believe you. That's a slander against God's character. We need to repent of that. We need to believe Yahweh and worship him and obey him. And don't forget the flip side of this account. God does perfectly provide for his people, but for those who do not trust in him, who persist in stubborn unbelief, what's their lot? Their lot is with the people of Jericho. It's total destruction and ruin. Holy judgment of God comes down upon them. There's no middle ground with God. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You either gather with me or you scatter in opposition to me. Jericho, we have a powerful reminder of the fate of all of those who oppose God and his Messiah. There's no salvation apart from God. Walls will not save. A healthy lifestyle will not save. The schemes of the world will not save. Good works and rituals will not save. All those who continue to insist on their own way, continue to serve themselves, stay comfortable in what they want to do, and rebel in their hearts against Yahweh, they will be utterly destroyed, just as we see in this passage. 
and eternally punished. So ask yourselves, again, which side of the Battle of Jericho do you want to be on? This ancient battle is in some ways a foreshadowing of a battle that is to come. The great battle of Armageddon. On whose side do you want to be? On the believers who conquered the city? Or on the side of unbelievers whose defenses were overturned and who perished in the city? You know, one concept I've been thinking about lately is the idea of testing. In these first five or six books of the Old Testament, we see testing happen constantly. And there are two ways that we can test God. We can talk about testing in terms of how we are tested by God, but there's also a way that we can test God. We can test God by unbelief. That's what Israel was doing. That's what the first generation of Israel was doing continually. They said, now, oh God, why did you do this? Why did you bring us here? And they weren't willing to believe God. How did God respond to that kind of testing? He was patient at first, but then he said, no more. This is evil, what you're doing against me. And it brings down my chastening and my judgment. And we hear later on in the scriptures that we are not to test the Lord like the first generation did. Not to test God with unbelief. But there is a way that we are to test God. How's that? By belief. Now, there's a section in Malachi much later in the scriptures where God, I think it's God tells the people who had been withholding their offerings from him, and he says, test me in this. See if I'm not willing to open the windows of heaven to rain down blessings on you, if you will obey. He says, I want you to test me, but with belief. Not unbelief. So another question for you to ask yourself is, how are you testing? Are you testing God with belief, unbelief? When we test God with unbelief, we risk his judgment. We risk causing his patience to run out, his great patience. But when we test God by belief, what do we see? We see God's goodness. We see God vindicated for his people. In this perfect time, in this perfect way, we see him vindicate. But we don't have time for a last question. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the archaeological evidence. There is great corroboration of what the scripture says in Telestal time not recognized by most archaeologists today, and the reason seems to be chronology. They date the destruction of Jericho, Telus Sultan, to 1550 BC, where the Bible would indicate that Jericho was destroyed around 1405 BC. They say, oh, this can't be Jericho, or rather, this can't be, the Bible can't be accurate, this is why you can't trust the Bible. But there are good reasons why there's a discrepancy here. number of possible reasons, it could be that Tel Sultan is not really Jericho, though it does seem like it is. It may be that the dating methods were done incorrectly on the site, and they need to be adjusted. Actually, Jericho, Tel Sultan was first dated in its final destruction, or rather its destruction layer, to 1400 BC. It was later revised, so maybe, maybe the revision was wrong. Well, it might just be the same issue that we saw in the Patterns of Evidence Exodus DVD. That is, they've dated it to the right period. But the whole chronological system of periods needs to be adjusted. To be a little technical, the Middle Bronze Age is the correct period for the destruction of Tel Sultan, and that corresponds to the scripture. It's just that they've dated the Middle Bronze Age too, too early. It needs to be pushed a little bit later. And so, one way or another, what the archaeologists say today does not really contradict the scriptures. There's a good explanation for why they think there's a discrepancy. 
Whether archaeology is able to confirm it or not, we know that the scriptures are true. Jericho was a great city, but a wicked city. It seemed like it could not fall, but God made it fall. And it was to be a testimony to Israel and to all of us. that God is able to bring victory for those who believe in him, but he will bring destruction on those who do not. Well, that brings us to the end of our lesson today. If you have questions or comments, please email me. Next week, we proceed further in the conquest. We're going to overview the rest of Joshua's campaigns and Israel's campaigns, see how God continued to keep his promises to his faith-filled people. Thank you for your patience today as we dealt with the audio difficulties. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is another good word, an encouraging word, but a sobering word. God, I pray that we would not test you with unbelief. Thank you for your patience for us, patience with us as, as we have done so. It was wicked for us to do so, God. Help us not to do so anymore, but to believe you as this second generation of Israel did and wait for you to bring the victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I'll see you again soon.